This episode of the Great War Podcast is brought to you by Audible. The good people at Audible are offering you, the listeners of the Great War Podcast, a free audiobook download when you sign up for a no-cost 30-day trial membership. To qualify for this offer, go to audibletrial.com forward slash gwarpodcast. That again is audibletrial.com forward slash gwarpodcast. Whether it's for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 device, Audible has over 150,000 titles to choose from. If there's ever been a book you've wanted to read, but just haven't found the time to sit down and read it, Audible has got you covered. There's something for everyone, ranging from horror to comedy to science fiction and history. Since we're back on the Western Front this week, I'm going to recommend The Marne 1914, the opening of World War I by Olga Herwig. The Battle of the Marne is arguably the most important battle of the Western Front, having stopped the Schlieffen Plan dead in its tracks and ensured that the war would not be over by Christmas. So remember, to get your free audiobook, go to audibletrial.com forward slash gwarpodcast. No capitals, no spaces. That again is audibletrial.com forward slash gwarpodcast for your free audiobook. Hello, and welcome to The Great War Podcast, an in-depth look at the origins, battles, and consequences of the First World War. Episode 27, Puff from a Cigarette. In the last episode, we finally closed the book on Falkenhayn's great offensive in the East for 1915. Beginning on May 2nd at Gorlitzi Tarnoff, the combined Austro-German armies had pushed the Russians out of Glacia and, by early August, succeeded in ejecting them from Poland and Lithuania. As the campaigning season came to a close, Falkenhayn's juggernaut turned its gaze to Serbia, and, with the help of the Bulgarians, invaded the beleaguered nation to cap off their successes for the year. At a cost of some 2 million Russian casualties and the total defeat of Serbia, Falkenhayn's armies had advanced 700 miles over the five-month campaign, not bad for a guy who opposed an Eastern offensive at the beginning of the year. In short, the Central Powers' efforts of 1915 had a profound impact. Not only would it force the French and British to step up their efforts in the West, but crucially showed that breakthrough was indeed possible, which, as you can imagine, was not lost on Sir John French, the commander-in-chief of the BEF, and Joseph Joffre, the French Army Chief of Staff. But since we've been away from the Western Front for, holy crap, five weeks now, we're going to head back there today and close up the campaign season, which featured a series of French efforts occurring in Champagne and Artois, and the British efforts at the Battles of Luz where, for the first time, we see Lord Kitchener's citizen army make an appearance on the battlefield. So, to paint it with a broad stroke, with German efforts concentrated in the east and allied attention on the Dardanelles, the Western Front was relatively quiet in 1915, at least in comparison to the next two years. The Germans were content to hold the positions they had gained the previous summer, and with a shell shortage gripping the allied armies, there had been no concentrated effort since the end of Neuve Chapelle back in March. That said, the Western Front remained a miserable and dangerous place. Skirmishes, trench raids, and artillery exchanges occurred on a regular basis, as the two armies continued to poke and prowl the other's lines. But while the British were content with the lull in action, the French were not. Even as the Gallipoli landings were getting underway, Joseph Joffre, the French chief of staff, was still facing a German army occupying large swaths of French territory, the bulk of which was in the highly industrious north. As a result, France had lost 57% of its coal production output, along with 70% of her steel and 80% of her iron ore to the German occupation. Because of this, Joffre was determined as ever to throw the Germans back across the River Meuse, and to do it as forcibly as possible, regardless of the human cost. 
In early May 1915, Joffre had used the Battle of Second Yip to attempt to pinch off the salient between Champagne and Artois, but the attacks were miserable failures, with the French army taking another 100,000 casualties for no gain. British forces, taking part in the May offensives, did not fare well either. On May the 9th, the 1st British Army advanced from their positions at Neuve Chapelle and assaulted the German lines along Albers Ridge, the same high ground which had stopped the British cold back in March. Despite a subsequent attack at Festubert a few days later, both efforts were checked before any gains were made. But the failed offensives of May 1915, known collectively as the Second Battle of Artois, had taught the Allies a few valuable lessons. For starters, the failures had largely been because of Allied undoing. Joffre's armies in the north at Artois did not communicate with those in Champagne, while the British commitment was largely haphazard, and the whole operation was thrown together on the fly. To give you an idea of this, British and Canadian troops involved in the attack at Festubert reported that the maps they had received were printed upside down or relied too heavily on landmarks which had long since been destroyed. Although the Allies had shot themselves in the foot, their communication issues were further undermined by the depth of the German defenses. The battles had shown that the problem was not seizing the forward trench, which actually happened quite regularly. The bane for Allied commanders was how to get beyond it, through the web of secondary defenses and into open country. Prior to heading east, Falkenheim's last order to his western commanders was to keep the front line manned with a skeletal force, and concentrate the bulk of their reserves in second, third, and sometimes fourth line trenches, which were usually dug on a reverse slope, making them difficult for artillery to hit. These reserve trenches were heavily fortified, featuring concrete redoubts, machine gun nests, and subterranean dugouts, separated by 15 feet of uncut barbed wire, and in some sectors, could run 3 to 4 miles deep. Essentially, the problem for attacking troops was what to do after seizing the front line. After the terrifying journey across no man's land, units were under strength and the men already exhausted. The smoke and dust kicked up from the artillery made communication between headquarters and forward units difficult. Telephone cables were cut by shrapnel, and using 19th century signalmen became obsolete, since they were easy targets for snipers, and with so much obstruction in the way the officers couldn't see them anyway. This meant that reinforcements were often sent in far too late, or not at all. As was the case in Second Artois, the French and British had succeeded in taking their objectives, only to find that they were cut off and isolated in the enemy trench system. In short, the Germans only manned their forward trenches with the crust of their available manpower, and were willing to fall back into readied secondary lines. So unless the Allies could find a way to break past this labyrinth, the Germans weren't going anywhere. Although breaking the German line would be the nagging question over the next three years, the French and British understood in 1915 that they had a lot of figuring out to do. The first issue was clear. They needed to work together. While Falkenhayn was rolling up the Russians like a carpet, the Western Allies were bickering over political and strategic differences. Since the spring, Joseph Joffre had come under heavy criticisms in Paris for his handling of the war so far. By July, nearly 900,000 Frenchmen had been killed, almost the total number lost in the decade-long Napoleonic conflicts, and the war was not even a year old yet. Compounding this criticisms of Joffre was the fact that the British were on a totally different page. Joffre wanted the Germans out, but Lord Kitchener was preaching caution, arguing that the best path to victory was to wait for the large volunteer army assembling in England, so-called Kitchener's New Army, to be ready for frontline service. Only then could a serious offensive aimed at dislodging the Germans be undertaken. Obviously, Joffre did not like this idea, and the seesaw continued. The guy caught in the middle of all this was the commander of the British Expeditionary Force, Sir John French. When the BEF first arrived in France back in August 1914, Sir John had received vague instructions from Kitchener about what his role was. Basically, Kitchener had told him, Sir John, you were to fight alongside the French, but not with the French. Get it? 
Sir John didn't get it, but acted like he did. The question with the BEF was what their role should be now that it appeared the war was going to be a bit longer than expected. Would it remain independent from Joffre's army, or would it be placed under Joffre's personal command? Having seen what the Central Powers were doing under Falkenhayn, Joffre obviously preached for the latter. To show just how far apart the two sides were to a compromise, there was still a lingering debate from the previous year over whether the British would get full access to the port at Dunkirk, which Joffre was reluctant to turn over. The back-and-forth arguments are best summed up by Lord Escher, the British diplomatic liaison in France who had a front-row seat to the theatrics. Quote, There are here two armies fighting side by side, with different objectives and clashing self-interests, one too strong for its length of front and the other too weak. End quote. The first big break in the uncertain Franco-British coalition took place on July 6, 1915, when the French Premier, René Viviani, met with British Prime Minister Herbert Asquith at the French port at Calais. The Calais Summit, as it is often referred to, marks the first time that the heads of state of the two nations met face-to-face. Although no concrete plans were made up, a few outlines were sketched out. 1. Kitchener agreed to a timetable outlining when he planned to make the first portions of his citizen army available for service. And 2nd, that a full-scale, coordinated offensive in the West was needed in order to relieve the pressure on Russia. Luckily for the Russians, however, the Cali summit coincided with Joffre undergoing a mass restructuring of his army. By pulling in territorials, conscripts, volunteers, and making the graduating classes of 1915-16 available for service, Joffre had beefed up his army an additional 200,000 troops, and now commanded 134 divisions in total, compared to just 94 in 1914. Furthermore, he divided his new army into three main army groups. In Artois, Ferdinand Foch was given command of Army Group A. Army Group Center, at Champagne, was given to General Edouard du Castelnau, and Army Group East, at Lorraine, commanded by General Augustine Dubal. With this new arrangement, Joffre felt he now had the flexibility to undergo more complex operations, and his grand design was to coordinate simultaneous attacks by Castelnau's army in Champagne and Foch's Army Group A in Artois. Essentially, the same plan as May 1915, except now with some minor changes. The first change had to do with artillery. Joffre was envious of the breakthrough at Golitsy-Tarnoff, which cemented in his mind that a heavy, prolonged bombardment followed by a wave of motivated troops was the key. So on the advice of Ferdinand Foch and Castelnau's deputy, Philippe Pitain, the French had begun assembling nearly 3,200 guns which were divided between Foch's army in Artois and Castelnau in Champagne. In previous attempts, the French batteries had focused on destroying the enemy's trenches, and basically just carpet-bombed the entire area. But as the German trenches became more elaborate, it was apparent that the old way of doing it was just not going to work. Instead, Foch and Pitain had been looking into a more scientific approach, designed to suppress the German lines. This new form of barrage, known as the lifting barrage, would focus on one area of the German system, and then, at timed intervals, shift its fire to another area. It was hoped that this would leave the forward trench in disrepair, but also succeed in disrupting the flow of reinforcements from the rear, leaving the Germans in total chaos as the attacking troops overwhelmed them. This lifting barrage was highly ambitious, but if it worked effectively, would give the attackers just enough time to infiltrate the German labyrinth. The second improvement was communication, along with a consolidated plan. The idea now was for Foch, supported by 19 divisions and 1,019 guns, to attack at Vimy Ridge, and basically cause as much chaos there as humanly possible, hoping that the Germans would divert more reserves to the area. With the Germans distracted, Castelnau would throw an additional 26 divisions, backed by a whopping 2,164 guns along a 28-kilometer front in Champagne. Castelnau's attack would be the battering ram which would send the Germans in a tailspin and force them into a withdrawal. 
Like in previous attempts, the BEF were to take part in the attack by supporting Foch in Artois, but this did not sit well with Sir John French. Unlike Kitchener, who preached patience, Sir John did not have the luxury of detachment. His everyday dealings with Joffre had put him in a difficult spot. On the one hand, he wanted to work closely with the French, and believed that further British commitments were necessary. But he did not agree with Joffre's aggressive strategy, and did not want to risk the lives of his men in foolish frontal assaults. Unlike Joffre, who enjoyed complete control over military affairs, Sir John was subordinate to Kitchener, and it was Kitchener who had the final say regarding the military purse strings. At least, before the Shell scandal, that is. Since the scandal broke, Kitchener had to face a coalition government, as Asquith's Liberal Party was forced to compensate with the Conservative Unionists. This meant that Kitchener's influence was curtailed, and now had a stronger opposition to contend with. Whenever the Conservatives haggled Kitchener about deploying his new citizen army, Kitchener had stoutly refused, arguing with what has become a famous idiom, quote, We have to make war as we must, not as we should like to, end quote. This stoic defense had worked until the Dardanelles fiasco brought down Asquith's liberals, and the conservatives under Andrew Bernard Law had come to interpret Kitchener's patient approach as a sign that he was not willing to support Joffre's forces in France. This pressure, coupled with an increasing defeatist attitude in Paris, had forced Kitchener's hand, and in addition to reinforcing Sir John with colonial troops, he authorized the release of two divisions from the citizen army, the 21st and 24th divisions. Now keep the 21st and 24th in mind, because once the battles of Luz get underway, it was Sir John's handling of these two units which would cause the greatest controversy. Soon after Joffre's rearrangement, the BEF took over an area of the front near the River Somme, allowing Foch and Castelnau to focus their strength in Artois and Champagne. As the Shell scandal had exposed, the BEF lacked proper munitions, and Sir John's opinion of the attack was further dampened when reports from home indicated that there would not be sufficient supply until 1916. If this was not bad enough, Sir John's first army commander, General Douglas Haig, had conducted surveys of the area near the mining town of Luz, where the BEF was required to attack. And the reports did not sound good. The ground was far too flat, and would leave the attacking troops totally exposed to German machine guns and artillery. Now, I have not been to Luz, but if you visit the website, I've uploaded a photo which I took atop the Canadian monument at Vimy Ridge, which is generally in the same area, so you can see the type of ground Hag was talking about. So with logistic and topographical reports not being very supportive, things were not looking good. But then a curious thing happened. Despite Hag and Sir John's reluctance in July, Hag's opinion of the operation began to change. In early August, Hag attended a demonstration of chlorine gas, and was so impressed by the trial results, he was convinced that it would make up for the lack of artillery. Now this certainly deserves a pause. Why would Hag, widely criticized as a technophobe, be interested in chlorine gas? Did he not see what happened at Ypres? Well, there are two things which can be gleaned from this. First, as Nick Taylor and Gary Schlaffield have pointed out, Haig was an optimist, who always believed that the next offensive would be decisive, which is also part of the reason why so many to criticize him for being short-sighted and out of touch. But don't forget that the German use of chlorine gas at Ypres did cause a momentary collapse in the Allied line. It's just that the Germans were so surprised they were slow to exploit it. So in Haig's optimistic mind, he felt that the BEF could learn from the German mistake, and be ready to pour through the gap once the gas had done its work. Another reason for Haig's optimism, and I'm glad I get to bring this up now because I had forgotten to mention it before, the Germans had deployed chlorine gas against the Russians in Poland that summer, resulting in thousands of Russian casualties. Of course, the untrained Russian troops were not the disciplined German defenders in France, but Haig was not to be deterred, and with orders from Sir John, began to draw up a detailed battle plan. In the weeks leading up to the attack, there was a certain buzz in the air, as Haig and Joff especially began to see this as the next big push. In May 1915, neither side had appreciated the depth of the German defense, 
but the hard lessons had been learned. Now with an upgrade in artillery tactics, manpower, and the use of chlorine gas, the coming battles of September 1915 were not just going to break the German line, but send the Germans clear from France. Beginning on September 21st, the Artois and Champagne sectors roared to life, as 3,000 French guns pounded the German lines, and the bombardment would continue for the next four days. As per Patin and Foch's suggestions, at timed intervals the barrage would lift from the front line and then move to the reserve trenches in the rear, coating the German lines in a bath of noise and steel. A German soldier, hunkering in his dugout, recalls, quote, It robbed us of our limbs and all our willpower. We were sitting in absolute hell. End quote. But as was so often the case on the Western Front, the bombardment was undeniable proof that an attack was coming. When the barrage rose to a crescendo on the morning of September 25th, the Germans, who had waited patiently, prepared to mount their defenses. In short, the French efforts in Champagne and Artois never got off the ground. As Foch and Castelnau ordered the men forward, they were met with a hail of German counterfire. Unlike Allied artillery, which was focused on enemy trenches, the Germans enjoyed greater flexibility and could zero their batteries on no man's land and throw the weight of their fire against the attacking troops. As a result, the ground was heavily created from previous exchanges, and the speed of the French attack was reduced to a near crawl. As was the same issue from May and June, those straggling units which fought their way to the forward trenches found they were isolated and confused by their surroundings. Officers could not rally their troops, and soon enough, fresh German reserves were counterattacking. In Champagne, there was some success, where on September 25th, the troops of the French 2nd and 4th armies exploited the lull following the bombardment by tunneling themselves close to the German line. The art of tunneling, known as the Joffe attack, initially caught the Germans by surprise and Castelnau's army succeeded in capturing 25,000 prisoners and 150 guns before the attack stalled. This success had bent the line just three kilometers before it was ground up by counterattacks. Meanwhile, the British situation at Luz had gotten off to a confusing start. Nearly 75,000 men divided among six divisions had been assembled for the attack. But a thunderstorm the previous evening had brought a change of weather which made releasing the gas unfavorable. Since the BEF had only 70 heavy howitzers, Haig's plan of attack was dependent on the gas being released on time. Now, the apocryphal story has it that on the morning of September 25th, Haig was wandering about his headquarters debating whether or not to give the order. Weather forecasts had hinted that wind conditions would improve later in the day, but only until well after the attack was to go through. So the story goes that at 5 a.m. in the morning, one of Haig's assistants took a cigarette break, and Haig watched as the smoke drifted off to the northeast, that is, in the direction of the German trenches, which convinced Haig to give the order. Now, it probably didn't happen this way at all, but it makes for a good story. At 5.50 a.m., 140 tons of chlorine gas was released against the German trenches. Except, not all of it went. Because the air was still damp, the cloud lingered in the British trenches, or blew back in their faces. There was another problem, too. The British had only enough gas for 40 minutes, so in order to stretch it out, it was mixed with a smokescreen and pumped out in regular intervals. The divisions which went over the top were effectively running blind, and the rudimentary gas mask they were wearing did little to help. The Germans, who had obviously taken anti-gas procedures, were quick to respond, and British casualties started to mount. Entire regiments got turned around or mixed up in one another as they tried desperately to make their way across no man's land. If the German defensive fire was not bad enough, panicked troops began to fire into their own ranks, which only added to the confusion. In short, it was complete chaos. But in other sectors, the gas did prove effective, and the British were able to secure the forward trenches. However, a communication breakdown between Haig and Sir John French would turn this nominal gain into a rout. Part of the problem was that Haig had expected the two divisions of Kitchener's new army, the 21st and 24th divisions, to be made available when a breakthrough was imminent. 
but Sir John had placed them under his personal command, and held them well back from the front. In fact, they were still in the marshalling areas behind the network when Haig's request for them came through. So as a result, they were slow making their way forward, owing to the fact that the British trenches were congested with wounded and dead. The two divisions, accompanied by an experienced Royal Guards division, did not arrive at the front until nightfall September 25th. The following morning, Haig had expected that the German lines would still be in disarray, and fatefully ordered the three units to attack the German 2nd Trench. The 21st and 24th Divisions were composed of roughly 15,000 civilian volunteers, many of whom had never so much as held a gun in their civilian lives. This was to be their first test of trench combat, and for many, it would be their last. Because the British lacked proper artillery, they were sent forward with little support, which meant that German barbed wire and machine gun nests remained unmolested. As John Keegan writes, never had machine guns had such straightforward work to do. Within one hour, 8,000 men were mowed down as the German machine guns raked back and forth across the advancing troops. Entire regiments were wiped out as tens of thousands of bullets found their mark. The event, known later as the Corpse Field at Luz, made the Germans sick to their stomach and opted to hold their fire as the survivors fled back to their lines. For a long time now, historians have roasted Sir John French for his handling of the reserve divisions, and without a doubt, it's their story which has caused the most controversy. Some say Sir John was jealous of Hag's rising star and wanted him to fail, while others argue he was hoping that by keeping the division under his command, he could release them at a moment of his choosing and emerge the hero. But recent scholarship has found there was much more to this picture. It is fair to say that Sir John was out of his element by 1915. Having been in France since August 1914, the stress of command had left him exhausted, and with the BEF increasing in size, he lacked the tactical mind which was required to handle the growing pile of work. As Gary Sheffield points out in his book, Forgotten Victory, Myths, and Realities of the First World War, Sir John's behavior had become suspect. For example, it's been said that he would make his rounds behind the line, visiting the wounded and encouraging the men coming in and out of the trenches. As Sheffield writes, this may have been good for morale, but with the BEF expanding and demands increasing, Sir John's absence created a vacuum in command, so when important decisions needed to be made, it was often difficult to track down. But, to be fair, this wasn't because Sir John was mentally unstable. He believed in that sort of personal touch, and was often reluctant to commit his forces to risky maneuvers. This is certainly commendable, but keep in mind that the demands Joffre and the French placed on the British commitment meant that Sir John was increasingly seen as a reluctant partner. But that guy, Douglas Haig, well, he seems to want to play ball. Now, it's interesting that although the Battles of Luz were Haig's baby, he planned and conducted the entire battle, his reputation remained intact afterwards. Certainly, the use of chlorine gas was mishandled, and ordering his troops across no man's land with little artillery support should be laid at Haig's feet alone. But in subsequent reviews of the battle, Haig could pin the blame entirely on the reserve division Sir John had held back. If he had had them at the right moment, the German line could have been broken. Whether or not Haig believed this, of course, is up for debate, but there is no hiding the fact that Sir John was on thin ice at this point, and with the coalition government and Joff wanting more of a British commitment, Sir John's boss, Lord Kitchener, was forced to remove him from command. Once the political niceties were sorted out, on December 6, 1915, Sir John resigned his post, and on December 18th, Douglas Haig, now elevated to field marshal, assumed supreme command of the British Expeditionary Force. Things were going to be very different from here on out. But we should pause and ask, why did Sir John, who gave Haig total command of the loose operation, insist on keeping the reserve divisions in the rear? The answer which I subscribe to, and promoted by Nick Taylor, is that Sir John wanted to reel Haig in from doing something too ambitious. As we saw earlier, Haig was an optimistic leader, and had sold Luz as the next big push. And it's possible that Haig, rightly or wrongly, assumed that those divisions would be at his disposal. 
But the difficult thing is that there doesn't seem to be anything which suggests the two men had any sort of previous understanding. They both held their separate views, but it really came down to a let's talk about this later sort of thing. Except that they never did. On the Western Front, the Allies clearly had a long road ahead of them. From a strategic perspective, the battles at Luz and those in Artois and Champagne were a total waste. Whatever gains the Allies had made in the attacks were eventually repulsed by German counterthrusts. Although the fighting in these areas would continue until October and November, the battles were essentially decided by the end of September. At Luz, British losses are calculated at 16,000 killed and 25,000 wounded, while total French, for both Champagne and Artois, go as high as 180,000. By the end of 1915, the French had lost 1.1 million men, a staggering number which no one could have predicted. With French casualties skyrocketing, Haig's BEF would begin to take over more sections of the front, and it became clear that defeating the German army would require a new school of military thinking. The big lesson from 1915 is that Britain, France, and Russia could not fight the war independent from one another. Defeats in the east had brought offensives in the west, and vice versa. This may have kept the scales balanced, but it would hardly bring about satisfying results. Throughout the winter of 1915-16, plans for simultaneous offensives in the east and west were laid out. The Russians would recover from their losses, and in the west, Kitchener's new army would begin to make their way to France, increasing the number of British troops several fold. 1916 promised to bring the war to a whole new level. With more men in uniform and the home front supplying munitions and equipment at a rate never before seen, 1916 would truly be the year of battles. But before we go, I want to make a quick announcement about last week's episode. As I was listening to the playback, I was horrified to realize that it was not very good, and I was not happy with it. I knew I could have done a much better job, but since I was already behind schedule, I did not have time to make the adjustments. So as an olive branch to myself and to all you listeners, I've gone back, polished up the transcript, and uploaded an improved version of that episode, which is the version you'll find there now. The information is all the same, but it is a smoother rendition than what was previously there. So I hope that when you get a minute, you give it a listen and find it far more up to standard. Next week, we'll remain in 1915 and look at what was unfolding on the high seas and the impact of unrestricted submarine warfare and the sinking of the Lusitania, an event which continues to cause controversy to this day. That's it for this week. Check out the website at thegreatwarpodcast.podme.com. There you can find a list of sources, email, Twitter, and contact information if you wish to get in touch with me. Comments, questions, and suggestions are always more than welcome. If you wish to support The Great War Podcast, you can make a one-time donation through our website at thegreatwarpodcast.podbean.com or look us up on iTunes and give us a review, as that will help us keep us afloat in the rankings and force me to keep turning out new episodes. Thanks for sticking by, and we'll see you again shortly.